All right, let's pray, and we'll dig into the scriptures. Jesus, thank you for um, your word, for what it has to say to us, for the way that it shapes our story. Pray that you would bless our, our time in it today, that you would give us grace to understand what you're calling us to, how you want us to be a local church. How we love you, Jesus, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are in the book of 1 Corinthians, and in this letter so far, we've gotten um, a very tender uh, attitude from Paul. If you remember all the way back to the beginning uh, of, our, of our series, we talked about how this letter is Paul writing to people that he knows. This isn't like Peter who writes to every Christian everywhere and expects that his letter just be passed around. This is Paul writing to Tom and to Ryan and to Ahmad and just people that he knows that he spent 18 months with tilling the ground, working the gospel, laying the foundation. He loves these people, he knows these people, and he desires for them to walk with Jesus in the fullness of what that means. As a church, they have struggled with certain elements. Uh, we talked about this at the very beginning, that while some churches maybe escaped the world too much and started to live a totally separate society and kind of had their Christian bubble, Corinth was the opposite. They really brought the world into the church. The way of the world, the thinking of the world, the wisdom of the world, they were trying to integrate it deeply into the life of the church. And Paul writes back to them and says, actually, you guys need a little more separation. We need to show where the gospel d divides our minds and our hearts from the things of this world and calls us out to be, to be holy, to be separate. So there are a few things that we've learned, and these are just some, some summary ideas that basically take chapters 1, 2, and 3, so even including today, just to give you a sense of what Paul is calling them out to so far. Uh, first of all, one of the things that we've learned is that your behavior does not make you spiritual, but your behavior is an indication if you are walking by the Spirit. Okay, so that's something that we have learned and will continue into today, and here's an in other words. In other words, a, a person can behave in a righteous-looking way and not be walking by the Spirit. Think the Pharisees, people that have lived the law, they have lived a righteous-looking life, but have failed to walk by the Spirit of God. Okay, and then you can, you can think of that in your mind. So a person can behave in a righteous-looking way and not be walking by the Spirit, but a person cannot be walking by the Spirit and not behaving in a righteous way. The life that we live in the Spirit will produce an outward way of being. It's evident. So just because somebody looks good doesn't mean they're automatically walking by the Spirit, but everybody who is walking by the Spirit will produce a certain kind of life. That's something that Paul digs into here. Second thing that we've been studying, there is a massive difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the kingdom of God. A major component of maturity in Christ is being able to discern between those two types of wisdom. The wisdom from the world and the wisdom from God. We learn that from Hebrews. We see that from the Corinthians. You could look at that. Uh, if you've ever taken time to read through Proverbs, Proverbs has 31 chapters. People recommend reading a chapter a day. And in February, you just cut off three chapters at the end of the book and pretend they don't exist. Or you double up somewhere. Either way, whatever. But read through the Proverbs, and one of the things that you find in the Proverbs is that there is God's way, and then there's the world's way, and they're contrasted frequently throughout this book. This is what it looks like to live in folly. This is what it looks like to live in wisdom. 
over and over and over and over and over again. And so Paul will talk about maturity as those that can discern or can, can uh, identify worldly wisdom versus wisdom from the kingdom of God and choose to pursue life in the kingdom of God. Here's the third thing that we've studied is that as you grow in maturity, the depths of wisdom and understanding of God grow as well. Uh, the way that we described this was like swimming in the ocean from here to Catalina, from here to Hawaii, from here to Japan. It's just, it's a big, huge ocean. And it's deep, and it's wide, and it's, it feels endless. Well, the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of God is even more endless than the Pacific Ocean. It is. You, you could spend the rest of your life diving deep into the things of God, and you will never find the end of it. You could ask anybody that's old. Uh, so anybody over the age of 50 that's been walking with Jesus, sorry if that makes you feel old. Uh, I'm trying to convince myself that 40 is not old because I'm about there. Um, so anybody over the age of 50 that's been walking with Jesus for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, one of the things that they will tell those of you that are young is that as you get older, one of the things that you learn is that you really didn't know anything to begin with and that there is so much more to understand as somebody that has gone on in life. Whereas when we're young, we kind of think we've got, our, uh, we've got a handle on it. We know what this is all about. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We know what God wants of us. And there's, a, there's an arrogance to youthfulness that prevents us from even being able to explore the depths of God. And what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to do is to not live in that arrogance but to open themselves up and explore the depths of God. So those are some of the things that we've learned. What we're going to do today is we're going to be in all of chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. It's a huge section, and I understand that we're not going to be able to dig into every single verse, but there is some incredible stuff in here that we as a church will need and Corinth clearly needed. So let's dig in. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, it is going to be up here. Is, is Critter in the room, Christy? Nope, she's not here. Do, do you have her journal? Okay, all right, so Critter, post, you have one also? All right, Grace, stand up and show everybody this journal. Oh, come on, what's the point? All right, they bought these journals that have uh, the, the Corinthian text on one side and an open page on the other side. It's just for 1 Corinthians. I imagine maybe they have them for multiple books, but what an awesome way to take notes. Highly recommended. It's on Amazon. Figure it out. Go there. All right, here we go. Here's the text. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in an only human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Remember that phrase, merely human. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. It's kind of a summary passage. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All right, we got a lot of work to do, so let's dig in and uh, fly through it. So Paul is frustrated with himself a little bit. Maybe not so much with himself, but with the situation. Keep in mind, he's not, he's not condemning the Corinthians when he says that he couldn't address them as spiritual people. He understands that there's a process. But there's also a bit of an expectation that was missed that, that Paul had desired to be able to do more with them. And he's basically writing to them and saying, here's the current situation. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. What we get from this verse is a really interesting understanding of how we as people function with Christ in our lives. So a little bit of our pneumatology or our, our, our theology of the Holy Spirit. Uh, according to Ephesians 1 and 2, when you give your life to Jesus, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So every follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit. If you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. If you are in this room and you are not a follower of Jesus, you do not yet have the Holy Spirit. That is the defining line between a follower of Jesus and not a follower of Jesus is those that have the Holy Spirit. So we learn that. We also learn from Ephesians 5 that there is a, a certain kind of filling of the Holy Spirit that takes place uh, for moments of gifting or ministry or opportunity to interact with the body. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's this sense of a, a temporary filling that the Spirit does to empower us, to gift us, uh, to carry out ministry and do the work of the Spirit of God in any given situation. So every believer has the Holy Spirit, but not every believer lives by the Holy Spirit. Not every believer walks by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Galatians. Galatians is almost entirely about the flesh and the spirit. If you're looking for a book to study this on, it does get pretty technical, but Paul gets into the weeds about life in the flesh and life in the spirit. But in Galatians 5.16, Paul writes and he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to talk about how the spirit and the flesh are in conflict with each other. When you're walking by the Spirit, it's inconsistent to then live by the flesh. And when you're walking by the flesh, you are not walking by the Spirit. And there's a sense in the life of the believer of an ongoing discipline 
to be increasingly submissive to the Holy Spirit over the course of your life. And as you go about life as a follower of Jesus, one of the, one of the growth areas, one of the disciplines that we work on is on a, on a daily basis, growing more and more ready to hand over our life to the Spirit of God, to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. So when Paul writes and says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. Here's how he knows that they're still of the flesh. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in an only human way? So here's how Paul understands this. As a church community, one of the themes or one of the uh, spirits that had arisen in them, spirits is a tough word to use, but the, uh, the attitudes that has arisen in them is an attitude of jealousy and an attitude of strife, basically infighting, uh, contentiousness. There's like an angstiness in the body where they, they had a hard time being at peace with each other. And what we know from Paul is that they were fighting over which leader they wanted to follow who they thought was uh, the, the appropriate leader for their context. And so Paul's writing to them, and he says, look, because of that, I know that you're not walking by the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't produce jealousy and strife. The Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Those are known as the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. The fruit means the produce of the Spirit, the, uh, the outcome of the Spirit of God being in us is those things. The outcome of the flesh is things like jealousy and strife. So Paul's looking at this church and he says, all right, so you're Christians, you're infants in Christ, I know that, but you're not living like it. You're not living like people that are controlled by the Spirit of God, and we know that based on the outpouring of your life, of the culture of the church. So Paul's writing into this, and he says some things that I think are really helpful for us. He says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here's something that I think is really helpful for us to understand, is the expectation of Paul is that when you give your life to Jesus, you begin to live a supernatural life. Now, that idea of living a supernatural life, uh, honestly, we start thinking about flying and walking through walls and just whatever. That's kind of the, the, the movie world around us has made supernatural, something like that. But when Paul talks about living by the Spirit and living in a more than human way and not merely a human way, he's basically teaching us that we don't see the world the same way. When you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, God's presence is in you. You now become something distinctly different than one that is merely human. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Paul will write later to the Corinthians. And in that new creation, something happens where we are united with Christ. We are joined together with Christ and we become temples or dwelling places of the Spirit of God, and we can go through life in the power of and the way of the King of Heaven. So Paul's expectation for you and for me 
is that as a follower of Jesus, you're living a supernatural life. You're seeing the world through God's eyes. You're living with a new purpose. See, as of right now, you as a follower of Jesus, your, your purpose is different than that of the world. People that don't know Jesus. People that don't know Jesus are living for the here and now. That's, they're building a kingdom in the present. People that live for Jesus, that are seeing the world with his eyes, are seeing it from an eternal perspective. They're looking at this not from what can I do in the here and now, but what can I do for the sake of the kingdom of God? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the life that we're living. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, that we have the mind of Christ, what he's saying is that we are now thinking like Christ thinks we can now look at the world the way that he looks at the world and he'll say later to the Corinthians that we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. We don't see people as fleshly people. We see them as souls that God desires to redeem, people that he loves. We've talked about this ad nauseum as a church, but but all of a sudden, it's not about the person that's, that's standing there offending me and the things that they're doing to violate my personal space and my rights. We've laid down our rights as followers of Jesus, and now we can love this person that is our enemy, that is our persecutor, because it's not about me, it's about Christ. So how do I see these people and love these people with his eyes, with his way of thinking, with his heart for them, and ultimately with his outcome being what I'm striving for in, in that relationship. And that becomes the way that we start to see the world. That's the difference between being human and being, according to Paul's language, more than human or not being merely human. So Paul's going to take a moment and do a little caveat. His big goal for this section is to get the Corinthians, again, with their minds off of human leaders and on to Jesus. That's the big idea but he's going to take a little bit of time and talk about apostolic ministry. What does an apostle do? And he's going to help them understand the role of an apostle and why it's totally foolish to put your eyes on the human person instead of on the Jesus that is assigning that person to do work. So diving into verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul's using two specific human leaders to try and help the Corinthians understand that when you put the attention on us, you are completely missing the point of what we came to do. We're servants. Now this is a different word than what Paul typically uses when he uses servants. Oftentimes he'll use like bond slave, and that's not the word that he's using here. This is like a, a waiter waiting on a table. We, we're just people that brought Jesus to you. That's the whole point of why we exist. So when somebody says, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, it is missing the point of what we came to do, and that was to deliver Jesus to you. And he was the one that assigned us to even show up in the, in the first place. Jesus was the one that sent us into this place to minister in this way. So Paul goes on to use a couple of metaphors. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Uh, this is where we get language about church planting. Whenever we start a new church, we, we call it a church plant. It comes from this passage. Uh, Paul's ministry was to go into new places where people hadn't heard the gospel before, and he would, uh, to use a farming analogy, till the ground and plant the seed. He was one that would do the early work 
to, to get the field ready to be productive. He skips over to a building metaphor. He would go into a town and he would lay the foundation that is Jesus Christ. He viewed his ministry as foundation laying, early work, trench digging, getting the field ready, getting his hands dirty, in the life with people, making sure that above all else they get Jesus. He wasn't there to accomplish anything else other than to make sure that they get Jesus and that this new church is built on that foundation. If any church is built on any foundation other than Christ, that is a faulty foundation. That's a bad situation. Anybody live in my neighborhood? Uh, right over here between here and the 23 freeway, all right? It's, it's known for its bad foundations, right? That's, uh, that's what we have going for us. All the way back in the 50s, bad concrete was poured with no rebar, and they're all cracked and, and broken, and houses are falling apart and sliding off the hill. It's beautiful. It's a great, great neighborhood. I love it. Some people have gone so far as to lift their houses up and to jackhammer up all the concrete and completely re-pour concrete with new rebar to establish a new foundation. That would have been the better way. We cheated and we sprayed a little epoxy in a giant crack and said, hey, that looks good. So <laughs> that was our approach. It was uh, $200,000 versus $3,000. We, we chose $3,000. But hopefully that's not also true with the church. We didn't cheat on this foundation. The, the picture that I'm giving you is this. Paul's writing to say, look, it is absolutely critical in every new church that the appropriate foundation is laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Don't build your church on anything else. The apostolic ministry that Paul will do is to go into new places and make sure that Christ is the foundation and then he circles back around to churches for years after he plants them to make sure that Christ is the foundation and that they're building well. He's an inspector. He'll go in and find out where the weaknesses are. As this church grows, as it multiplies, as it does the things that it's supposed to do, is its foundation able to handle this new growth, this new building, this new structure that's being put up on top of it? Paul works very hard to make sure that Jesus is the foundation. That is his understanding of apostolic ministry. Laying a foundation of Christ and circling back around to make sure that Christ is that foundation. What Apollos did... He talks about how Apollos watered, and then skipping over to the building, building analogy, I laid the foundation, and others built upon it. And he's referring to Apollos, he's referring to Peter, he's referring to different people that came and helped build up the building. And these two things that he points out, Apollos was a teacher, a very eloquent teacher. I don't know if you have people in mind when, when we talk about eloquent teachers, I have guys that I listen to that have absolutely shaped my, my life, my, my theology, my understanding of the scriptures. I love listening to certain teachers. They do a great job. And Paul basically is pointing to Apollos and saying, yeah, he was one of those for, for Corinth. But even him, he was just out there watering the field. It was God that was causing the growth. To get caught up in the work that I do or the work that Apollos does is to miss the point of God being at the the center of all of this. God being the source of what is truly special about any given place, about any given local church, God is at the helm and he's the one that needs the glory. The human leaders are servants that bring Christ to you on a platter. That is their job is to serve Jesus up and make sure that he is known. But Jesus is the objective and to miss that is foolish. That's just seeing things from a human perspective. 
Now, Paul takes another caveat off of his caveat to talk about um, the danger of building poorly. He says this, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, generally uh, things that would last in a fire and things that would not last in a fire, each one's work will become manifest or seen or known or visible, for the day will disclose it. If in your Bibles that word day is capitalized, is it up there? I don't know. I can't see it. Yeah, there it is, capitalized. It's because it's talking specifically in reference to the day of the Lord. Uh, a day that was frequently known in Israel, that was understood in the New Testament, that Jesus was going to return. And in that moment, the work that leaders will have done would have been made very clear who built well and who did not build well. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, people have talked about what Paul is talking about here at length, trying to understand what's he getting at. And essentially what you can understand is that Paul's writing to the Corinthians to say, look, I believe that we built you on the foundation of Jesus and we're continuing to work on that. And anyone that comes to contribute from a ministry perspective is responsible for building well. Building this thing and treating it as what it is. That it is the temple of God. And the only way really to know if it's being built well or not, well, first of all, if it's laid on the foundation of Jesus, and second is if it withstands the testing of judgment day. And that's a, it's an interesting thing where Paul points so far forward, but he is essentially writing to the Corinthians and saying, look, good work and bad work will be revealed when all is said and done, but I'm telling you what we taught you, Jesus, is what your life and this church needs to be built on. Now, Paul goes on to say this in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, there are other places in the scriptures where you individually will be described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul will get there in 1 Corinthians 5, I believe, where he talks about your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not what this passage is talking about. Uh, this is the uh, classic Texan Greek where Paul is writing and says, do not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. All right, this is a, a you all passage, second person plural, that what Paul is getting at, and keep in mind, this is not Peter writing to every church everywhere and treating them as the priesthood of all believers. This is Paul writing to a specific local church saying that when this church is a thing, God's presence is among it. And leaders have to handle it very, very carefully. There's some theology that's important for us to unpack with this. As a local church, as an expression, a local expression of the body of Christ, Paul is telling us that God's spirit dwells among a church gathering. Now, it's really important that we recognize that that's not here in this room when we meet from 10.30 to 12 o'clock on a Sunday 
That's not what Paul is getting at at all. That's why we do Anthem Anywhere, to make sure that you know that any time and any place when the body of Christ is gathered, that's, a, that's a, a, an expression of the local church, and that's critical to understand. They gathered in the synagogue, and they met from house to house. Both were the church in Jerusalem, but they had different forms and formats, but they were both the church of Jerusalem. But there is something in the local church that God wants to acknowledge, that his presence, his spirit, is with us as a gathered body. Things that I think you could take away from that and I think would be really important for you to understand is that we have a healthy, it's important that we have a healthy understanding of what the local church is from God's perspective. When, when Paul tells the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 um, to shepherd the flock that is entrusted to you, there's a sense of the Holy Spirit giving a flock to a certain group of elders and they are to shepherd that flock with great care and stewardship. There's a sense of this is something special. This is something that belongs to God. And while the whole church worldwide is the bride of Christ, also the local church is the bride of Christ. Each one represents an expression of Jesus and his body, Jesus and his bride and so what happens here is critical for us to understand that this is part of God's story. And you are a part of that. What Paul's going to start with here is from the leader level talking about it and saying we have a responsibility to handle that with great care. Look at the way that he writes about it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Again, the commentaries on this are like all over the map. Don't know if that's destroying their reputation. Don't know if that's ending their physical life. Don't know if that's them going to hell. We have no idea what exactly Paul means when he says God will destroy him, but they all come to the universal conclusion that this is a dire warning from Paul that anyone who messes with God's church is going to face judgment for that action. Anyone who mishandles God's church is going to face judgment for that action. James will talk about it and say that teachers are held to a higher standard. There's a call to elders to take great care of the church, and it's critical that we understand that God values his church and the leaders have a part to play in how that is stewarded. Now, Paul will address later on in this letter how every member of the body is a critical component of that body operating with health. He'll talk about uh, the more known parts, the more vis visible parts, like the eye and the ear and the foot. And then he'll talk about the immodest parts, the parts that are covered up. He does not give physical examples to that, but he talks about them and says every member of the body of Christ is indispensable to the body walking in health and completeness and so here he's talking about the leader responsibility and he will get to talking about like the body life responsibility. How we handle God's temple absolutely matters. Okay, he goes on. He says, let no one deceive himself. This is where he kind of brings it back. So he's coming out of the, the teaching about apostolic ministry and back into applying it to Corinth. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, 
The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Paul's challenge to the Corinthians is to be people that walk in discernment about where they are being, uh, or how they are being formed. Uh, Dallas Willard, a writer, philosopher, theologian, is famous for talking about this, and he says, everybody is being formed all the time. But what forms you is something that you have a choice to participate in. Are you being formed by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Kingdom of God, or are you being formed by the world around you? Now, all of us, all the time, we've got input coming at us like crazy from the world around us. It could be the, the, the people that you talk to, the, the radio that you listen to, the TV that you watch, the places that you go online, wherever it is. It's all trying to form you into something. It is shaping something in you. And Paul's calling on every person in the body of Christ at Corinth to be shaped by, he calls the wisdom of God, which is the cross. We talked about this last week, the cruciform life, the mind that is shaped by the cross of Jesus, the life that is shaped by the cross of Jesus. So it doesn't mean that you can cut off all input. You never will be able to. As people of the world, I was talking with Bert this morning. He's teaching at Anthem Camarillo today. He was sitting at Eggs and Things prepping this morning, and the three tables around him, he could hear the conversations that were going on, and he was just giggling at the, at the things that were being said in those conversations. But even those make their way into our mind, just the people around us, the things that you see as you're driving, the stuff that's attached to every email, the stuff that's in every workplace, in every school, it's all there all the time, and you have a responsibility to engage with discernment, the things of this world. Paul's concern was that the Corinthians were bringing the world into the church, that they had uh, learned really great and wise things from people outside of the church, and they were trying to bring it into the church. And in that, they were trying to bring that culture where it's like, oh, well, I, 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 just, I like this particular teacher and everything that he has to say, and this is the life that I'm going to shape and be formed by. And Paul's like, no, 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 only Jesus shapes a life. Only Jesus forms a life. That's how that has to go. But he was working on getting them to discern how to see the, the wisdom of the world and its, its folly, how it misses how shallow it is, and to find their life shaped by Christ. Each one of you needs to decide to seek the wisdom of Jesus over the wisdom of the world. It's got to be part of your story is that in increasing measure, you give your life over to the wisdom of God. You start to saturate your life with the word of God, you start to walk in increasing measure filled by the Spirit of God. Start to let your mind be transformed. Let your, your life be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Letting God start to take over in increasing measure how His Word is shaping you. Nobody can do that for you. Discipleship is presenting you with the opportunity to walk in greater uh, imitation of Jesus. It's teaching people to obey. It's showing them the way. But you can't force somebody to live as a follower of Jesus. You can't force somebody to walk by the Spirit of God. Part of your life is participating 
in your own formation. Joining with Jesus in being shaped into his image. And it takes work. Part of the reason we're afraid of, of working as Christians is uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace that you're saved through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. So when anyone talks about working, it can, we think, oh, well, no, no, no. There's no work in Christianity except that Paul also told the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's, there's something in there that we need to understand. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't work for it. And that is the point that Paul made abundantly clear. But as followers of Jesus, we do need to work on understanding what it means to walk in greater faith, in greater imitation of Jesus, in greater submission to the Spirit of God. You have a part to play in this. So Paul calls on them. And he says, let no one deceive himself. Don't be a fool. If you think that you're wise in this age, your best bet is to become a fool that he may become wise. Dive into the fullness of the cross. Walk with humility and understand that you don't know as much as you think you know. I'll just throw it out there again. Anybody over the age of 50 able to testify to the younger people that they don't know what they think they know? Just, <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's part of growing up and getting older and growing in maturity is that the older you get, the more you realize that there's more out there that you didn't know than that you did. And Paul's calling on the Corinthians to bypass a whole lot of hardship, a whole lot of pain, and to let the cross be the thing that shapes their world and their life. Just know that this wisdom is yours. So Paul finishes by saying, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So he's finishing this by making very sure that the Corinthians know this. Every single one of us is equal in the kingdom of God. He will say this in a lot of different ways throughout the New Testament. Neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, on and on. He talks about all of the different types of people that come together in the body of Christ. And here he's looking at it and saying this. Every single one of us has full access to what God wants to give you and how he wants to develop you in his kingdom. That's why we don't hold to a, a, a priesthood that stands between the body of Christ and the king of glory because the, the body of Christ is called the priesthood of all believers by Peter. Every single one of us has direct access to Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing and he's saying all of us have all of it and Christ has us and God has Christ. That's the extent of the authority structure, or maybe not the authority structure, but the value structure or the, um, the headship structure of the kingdom of God is that we all as a church, as a universal body of Christ are in submission to Jesus and Jesus is in submission to the Father. End of story. So Paul is, Paul is basically saying, so stop looking at other leaders as anything other than servants of the gospel. They're there to bring it to you. So I want to encourage us as a church with this. 
kind of a, what do we do with a passage like this? I just want to challenge you and encourage you to walk in a life of humility. I know that might sound like an oversimplification, but to put it as simply as this, Paul calls on us to abandon the wisdom of the world or to discern away the wisdom of the world and to seek Christ as the thing that forms our lives and our minds. It takes humility to do that. As you're walking through major decisions in your life, are you walking into those saying, Jesus, what is it that you have for me in my life? Are you inviting your community into that? Bringing these brothers and sisters in Christ into your story and saying, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I believe Jesus is saying about this particular situation. Do you guys agree? It's bringing our lives before Christ and presenting them in humility and saying, okay, I want to I walk in a life that is shaped by Jesus. I want to walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for us and we'll spend some time responding. Jesus, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to see um, the, the story that you are inviting us into is a different kind of story than that of the world. And Lord, it's a, it's a call to humility. It's a call to walk in this not thinking that we have it all together, not thinking that we know everything that everybody else doesn't know, but understanding that there is a, a bigness to you and a beauty to you that we're going to spend the rest of our lives exploring, but that we trust that your way is the way. So Jesus, teach us to be humble. Teach us to be people who seek you. Teach us to be people that listen to your voice and follow you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.